0: Thank you so much. Uh, It's wonderful, although not remotely surprising, to see so many of you here this evening. Um, I'm very happy to be in conversation with Catherine about this um, just-published book um, in which she confronts a figure of whom she suggests feminism has lost sight, namely the father, notwithstanding the critique of patriarchy. Daddy Issues is really—I mean, I love the—I uh, love the cover design because it sort of, you know, makes you think that you're going to read something by Marianne Keyes. <laughs> 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 which I—I—I I, I have to forewarn you because you won't know this—it um, it really isn't. Um, but. Um, <clears throat> uh, It's a bracing and provocative and deeply engaging intervention, um, much informed by psychoanalysis, although with um, a wonderfully light touch. Um, uh, And especially, actually, by the work of Winnicott, who I think is somebody we'll no doubt be talking about in the course of our conversation. Um, It is full of astute (coughs) readings of various representations of fathers in contemporary novels and films. Um, And we might return to one or two of those as well. Um, But we're going to start by just hearing a bit from a bit of the book itself. Um, Catherine is going to start us off by reading the opening.
1: If you can't hear me, can you wave or shout or something? So I'm going to be just from the start. In the awful... Wearying months, in which Harvey Weinstein's (coughs) ritualistic mistreatment of women was being recounted daily in the media, I found myself, like so many others, wondering and talking about the men in my life. Ex-boyfriends, ex-stalkers, ex-harassers, ex-gropers. My friends and I looked back, fitfully, in agitation, at the things we had endured, the things we'd kept silent about, and we looked around at the things that were bothering us now. Throughout the autumn and winter, we told and retold stories, seeing them in a new light, gently mentioning things we knew about one another's lives, murky memories, events we had not mentioned for years. We talked with a renewed anger and frankness, a renewed sense of permission in so doing, and perhaps, too, a renewed sense of simplicity. We were questioning all the men in our lives, all the forms of patriarchal power, but we rarely spoke about our fathers. (coughs) Soon after the allegations against him were published, Weinstein's wife Georgina Chapman announced she was leaving him. I kept thinking, what about his children? You can at least in principle leave a husband, but you can't leave a father. In her poem, Sunday Night, Sharon Olds describes her father, putting sorry, her father, during family meals in restaurants, putting his hand up a waitress's skirt, if he could, hand, wrist, forearm. Olds notes that she never warned the young women. Whoop, he would go, as if we were having fun together. She writes about fantasizing sticking a fork in his arm, hearing the squeak of muscle, feeling the skid on bone. Sometimes, she says, I imagine my way back into the skirts of the women my father hurt, those bells of twilight, those sacred, tented woods. I want to sweep, tidy, stack, whatever I can do, clean the stable of my father's mind. Charon project is reparative. She wants to heal the wounds her father has inflicted. She wants to use language to restore dignity and pleasure. Can words rewind time? undo harms we might wish they could but who are we when we make this attempt who are we writing as
0: thank you i feel like that Olds material is so startling it needs a pause um i'm going to start with a basic question about the Running argument in the book, or in a way, the running question. Because early on, you ask for all the talk of patri- patriarchy, has feminism? Oh, am I? Am I is it, it? Yeah, that's all right. Um, I'm just wondering if I'm. Yeah. Okay. I'll uh, I'll try and face my mic better. Um, so. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, so the question, the question that uh, more or less opens the, uh, the essay. Um, you know what? I, I, I can't not face the person that I'm speaking to, so I'm just going to switch the location of the mic. There you go. Ah, who says that intellectuals don't have practical ingenuity <laughs> wired into them? Um, uh, so... I'm going to go back to this question. I promise you I'm going to ask it properly. For all the talk of patriarchy you ask, has feminism forgotten about fathers? And I, I just wondered if you could tell us a bit about what it is that provoked that question for you.
1: I suppose, I mean, partly my life provoked the question in the sense that I'd, I think the book comes out of um, lots of conversations I'd had over the years with um, female friends especially, about our families and about the kind of distorted mirror relationships um, between the sort of individual family unit and things that were going on outside the family in the wider world. Um, And that really came to a head when the sort of Me Too stuff started happening. And I was Reading, I, th- I think I'm, I have this timing right. I'm, it may be wrong, but I was reading Sophie McIntosh's *The Water Cure* around the time that the Me Too stuff was coming out, and um, and it suddenly became very clear to me that I wanted to write about fathers because there's such an interesting father figure who's sort of both absent and horrendously present in that novel. Um, and I just kept thinking as the as the Me Too stuff was unfolding. <coughs> that um, there's a curious separation between the public and the private in the way that we were addressing these questions of sexual violence. And, of course, feminism has such a long history of linking up the public and the private and of you know, questioning the sort of tenacity of that distinction and the uses of that distinction, the way that you know, the private realm... It's always been in the interest of patriarchs to, to maintain the private realm as, pri- as private, as a realm where domestic violence isn't seen as violence or where marital rape isn't a thing. Um, and so it just really struck me when all this stuff was coming out daily that we were so preoccupied with men in the public realm, men as colleagues, men in the workplace. And it made me think about you know things like Virginia Woolf's Three Guineas and all of her work where that question of, the relationship between the individual father and then the kind of you know, reverberating social body father that mm. she deconstructs so brilliantly in Three Guineas. And so it really came out of a, a genuine sense of confusion, That, that especially because the Me Too phenomenon was such a kind of loquacious phenomenon. It, mm. was, it was all about words. It was all about speech. It was all about truth-telling. It was all about you know, heroically and valiantly telling your stories about these indignities in the public realm. And as far as I could see, hardly anyone just asked the question of what it's like to be a daughter of one of these men or what these men are like in the private realm.
0: One of the hints you give us as to why this might be um, is a kind of emotional exceptionalism about fathers that in a way the attitude we might have towards fathers evokes the attitude we might have uh, in in Freud's account of of parental sexuality. You know, yours might be like that, but not mine. And there's a, a few daughters in this book who seem to have that troubled, exceptionalist relationship, you know, where they may have fathers who are you know, if anything, more like that. And yet they sort of take them out of the set of fathers. So we can talk about Mm -hmm. patriarchy, but not about my father.
1: Yeah. Yeah, that's right. And I suppose it's that dynamic that I'm interested in. You know, given that the word patriarchy has really come back into Mm. sort of popular parlance in a way that it had been absent from for a while... um, you know that term. It, it's now sort of so so present, and it, it's sort of you know rolling around the mouths of so many people. But the father—that's the root of the term patriarchy—is mm. is really obscured in that. And and I, I am really fascinated by um, by daughters of you know so-called bad men, mm. um, and there are a few I mention in the book. But recently, I wrote something about. Um, Paris Jackson and her sort of public defense of Michael Jackson Hmm. and she said this thing in an interview that I found so painful which was um, it was a tweet she wrote where she said do you really think that they could tear his name down they don't stand a chance Hmm. and I found it so kind of poignant because it seemed to me that she was saying it in the spirit of defence of her father against the allegations of abuse against him, but it seemed to me a term that could equally be said by somebody who feels despair at the fact that these men, you know, their reputations have survived for so long, and have, you know these people have committed such kind of, you know, as I said, like ritualistic, almost theatrical harm, mm. and so so it kind of spoke this sort of lament that she put on Twitter, I felt, spoke to, you know, what, I mean, I'm not going to speculate about her, but, you know, what might be something that a lot of us hold in together in one very uncomfortable space, which is a feeling of, you know, rage and frustration at all the things that we've seen, but also a feeling of, of not knowing what to do with that rage and, and, and feeling protective. Mm. I mean the question of who protects whom between the father and daughter I think is really interesting because, of course, culturally the, um, you know, the most kind of salient part of that dynamic is the father protecting the daughter, I think. But I think we protect our fathers because it's Mm. extremely painful to reject a father or to turn against him, just as it is painful and risky and frightening to um, reject men, or to you know, speak out about misogyny. So that that dynamic, when I when I look at the daughters of women of men who have you know had these terrible kind of public scandals, I feel I feel such a sense of horrible <laughs> sort of sympathy for them in a way because yeah. there's part of me that thinks I don't I don't know what else they can do mm. psychologically.
0: Mm. Mm. And. That, in a way, pushes the emotional exceptionalism a little bit further, because it's not quite as simple as saying, well, it wasn't my father, or my father didn't do that. It's as though if you generalize the critique, then you can talk about violence and hostility. But if you zero in again on my personal father, then suddenly um, you become almost... the the, the daughter might become exaggeratedly nuanced. My father had a reason for Mm -hmm. doing this. And I'm just thinking about this now in relation to the ways that you talk about the contemporary father. Because the contemporary father or, you know, some millennial derivative of of the new man um, is, in your account, identified with a predatory masculinity that a father knows but now disavows. I mean, it's a wonderful phrase, so I'll just repeat it. Identification with a predatory masculinity that a father knows, but now disavows. So, um, you know, men, in a way, inherit this history um, of patriarchal violence and they know that it belongs to them, and at the same time, they're trying to distance themselves from it. And I suppose the question then arises of how it's possible to assume the identity of a father without going through some version of this process of identification and disavow. You know, how might it be possible for any father, you know, potential or actual, to bypass this? Well, so... I mean, you, 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 you talk about the, the imperative to keep the modern civilized father on the hook, and I suppose it opens up a discussion about what, what it might mean to keep the modern civilized father on the hook, given that, it, you know, one can't simply, at a stro- on a sort of voluntary stroke, just disidentify with this predatory father. You know, it's part of the inheritance of any father.
1: Mm. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know how one I mean yeah. I mean I suppose I think it I think it's really important to you know go into the darkness um in general but in relation to fathers and and I do think that I mean that's where I I think kind of connecting up some of the conversations that have happened in the last couple of years to the figure of a father could be really fruitful but of course only in so far as men are able to hear those conversations and to listen to them because I don't think they're easy conversations to um, listen to let alone to kind of try and you know incorporate and digest and make something of them but you know I was I was reading this back this morning and thinking gosh am I I think I'm arguing that in the kind of Question of like the predatory man and the predatory father, and the question of protection. So, the fathers who um, see their role as protecting their daughters from other men. Um, I do think I'm arguing that the roots of the incel movement is in there. <laughs> yes, yeah. Because I think some of that kind of protective rhetoric about fatherhood and the and I think we're, I'm going to read a little bit around this um, in a bit. The the, the sort of normalisation of a father's possessiveness, like sexual possessiveness of the daughter and his rage at you know men trying to uh, seduce his usually teenage daughter and beyond. Um, I think that in that there is the seed of so much kind of misogyny, which is namely a complete denial of a woman's own sexual agency. So when a father is protecting his daughter against other predatory men, not him, other predatory men, um, he's completely, you know, overriding the possibility that that daughter may have legitimate sexual curiosity of her own, that she may have a right to explore. And I think that that rhetoric is also one that... um, Completely normalizes, and sort of it's not even about normalization. It's just taking as a as a complete fact that a woman's sexual life and emotional life must revolve around a man's sexual rage. Mm. <laughs> and I and I do think that is that is what leads to you know acts of mass terror by men who feel rejected by women. Yeah. <laughs> and I feel, you know when yeah. I say that I yeah. think you know when I kind of extrapolate that part of the argument I think. Is that really what I'm saying? Like, there is something. And and I suppose, you know, Valerie Solanas is in this book at various points, and and I feel like in those moments in the text, I think I was slightly consciously doing something that is about um, saying something that, in quite a matter of fact way, that in some ways seems kind of insane and a bit unhinged. I think Solana's believed what she was saying in the Mm. Scum Manifesto, and I believe what I'm saying here too, and I think it's far less crazy. But, you know, there's that element of you trying to push that kind of, that dark thought that I think none of us want to think about. It's really uncomfortable to think about fathers as the root of terrible sexual violence and gendered violence, but the family is where we learn the primacy of the male ego.
0: (laughs) I mean, it, it, it brings to mind this I- extraordinary line uh, from the very late Freud in the outline of psychoanalysis. He says, the bedrock of all illness is the repudiation of femininity. Um, and uh, yeah. it, it feels like that's exactly what you're describing mm. um, in this kind of pushing of, of the logic of the incel. Mm. Um, I mean, one of the things you pull off in the uh, in the book... Um, and I really mean this only as a compliment. You don't you don't go into the confessional register, and I believe me, I'm not going to ask you to. But um, it's nonetheless in places quite an excruciating book to read, um, just <laughs> because it takes us into such um, disturbing and unpleasant places. And in particular, and this goes back, I suppose, to something we were we were talking about at the beginning the daughter's protectiveness towards the brute of a father. You ask at one point, who knows what the daughters of the Weinsteins of the world feel about their dads? And you also ask what the daughters of the Donald Trumps of this world um, think. Um, uh, And, you know, Ivanka's, you know, I mean... In some ways, you know, Jane is facing, you know, she's in in some sense at least, um, down with the critique of patriarchy. Mm-hmm. But again, the exceptionalism of, well, not my dad. And you, you, you give us this incredibly disturbing quote actually from her, you know, in 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 uh, response to questions about, you know, the, the, the dozens of, of uh, assault and rape allegations she says the greatest comfort i have is the fact that i know my father um, and I, I was reading something about um, the, the 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 recently um, unraveled nexium cult um, the, the what the nexium cult it was a it was mm-hmm. a, a cult in uh, based in, in albany which was basically a, arranged uh, organized around this this sort of rather mad patriarch who um, sort of, in the end, created a pyramid scheme around his sex addiction um, and, and sort of created this flow of endless women to, uh, to brand, literally physically brand with a branding iron and abuse. So it's, a, it's, it's a, an extraordinary story. Um, but I, I was listening to a podcast about it and a number of women... Um, are recorded uh, defending the leader of the cult, saying, well, I never saw him do that. Mm-hmm. Um, and one of them, you know, a kind of repentant lever of the cult, says, you know, I used to say this all the time. I never saw him do that. And that feels mm-hmm. like very much part of the sort of the, the, the mad logic mm-hmm. that... The daughter always seems to want to invoke, you know. Mm. He, he. He. Almost as though they're saying, well, it, it may be that in some generalized universe he's like that, but mm. as my dad, he's not that.
1: Yeah. Yeah, and it's also striking how um, sometimes, you know, daughters who have defended their fathers often make use of. Um, a really sort of heart-melting image of father and daughter with the daughter as a young child. Um, So um, one of the Cosby daughters did that and then Bill Cosby, during his trial, he sort of seemed to orchestrate various photos with the now adult um, child star who was his daughter in the Cosby show. And, of course, the Cosby show was all about being a dad and being a really kind of charming... um, lovable dad uh, so he posted on social media photos of them in the show so with her as a little toddler and he is the lovable dad and then them at the trial with her as a woman in her 30s um, and Lily Rose Depp did a similar thing with the allegations about Johnny Depp right. so put on Instagram a photo of Johnny Depp and her when she was a little infant and the rhetoric is, is always you know I know I know my father. Mm. I know my father, and, and, and there are versions of that being said all the time in relation to men who are accused of terrible things, you know, people say it about their friends and their colleagues, and they say it about their husbands as well. Um, but, um, sorry, I've slightly lost my thread.
0: But there are so um, many of those women in the public eye, I mean one thinks of Meryl Streep, Margaret Atwood, you know, um, women who have been attacked for making the exception, and yet, how yeah. does one not make the exception? If yeah. one has relationship.
1: And again, yeah, so what I was thinking of also is that it's it's the invocation of the private hmm. as a way to trump the public. Right. So all these allegations, you know, however many women accused have accused Trump to date, however many people accused well, I mean there are just too many examples to name, but but one private knowledge of one private intimacy or love or respect overrides yeah. all of that. And that yeah. I find very interesting. Why why does why is the private why does it de scale so much?
0: Almost in fact cancels out. As though the, the 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 sort of public knowledge is unthinkable. Yeah. Once you carry around with you this private memory, this sense of intimacy. Does it have something to do with shame and humiliation then?
1: For the person, humi- for the woman humiliated. Yeah, by for,
0: for the for the daughter who says, "But I love this man."
1: Yeah, I think it's really, it's really painful to admit that you can love somebody who's a complete shit,
2: mm-hmm. and
1: and the, that fact is true. You know, I think we all, all we all have a version of that in our lives. Um, and yeah, and I think it's also. Also in play is the fact that it's very. I mean, it's almost like a kind of empiricist theory of knowledge that you know, you, you know what you know from your feelings and your experience. And anything else can't sort of enter into conversation with what you know through your own sort of embodied knowledge. Mm. Um, and I think it's very, it's very destabilizing to think that you, that you can both know somebody and not know someone. Mm. None of us. I mean, and I, you know, I've not been in the situation of an Ivanka Trump or one of these people, and I would not want to be. But I can well imagine it's extremely painful to have to reckon with the the public version of somebody you know. Also, because the public version of things can often be wrong, <laughs> terribly wrong. Well,
0: of course. I yeah. mean, it's yeah. not.
1: It's not as if sheer numbers. Equals the truth. No, no, right?
0: that's
1: right. Yeah. So that that's what's yeah. also really difficult is that I think you know people are. I think people who defend these men. I think it's really genuine. I think they really believe it because they have to believe it. Yeah. Because, you know, it's it's a whole edifice. It's a whole structure. When you when you love someone or you're related to somebody, it's not just one thing. There's so many points to the the web. Yeah. That. You know, you pick up one part and the whole thing falls apart.
0: Mm. This feels like a good moment, in fact, to read uh, our second epi- excerpt. <clears throat>
1: Since the decontractualizing of marriage, the question of ownership of the daughter has taken on a romantic and sexual hue. Marriage is no longer an exchange of property, but the exchange of a desired love object. While it's still understood consciously or unconsciously as about ownership, the question of ownership is now overwhelmingly cast in the rosy light of love. In Hollywood, a father's sexual jealousy is always taken for granted. In Meet the Parents, Greg meets his new girlfriend Pam's parents for the first time on the occasion of Pam's sister's wedding. They stay at Pam's parents' house. Robert De Niro plays Pam's father Jack, supposedly a retired florist who's really an ex-CIA operative. The setup is classic. An alpha male father, competitive with and hostile to the new boyfriend, convinced no one is good enough for his daughter. The entire family defers to monomaniacal father Jack, taking this rivalrous dynamic as given. When Pam and Greg arrive at the house and Pam detects her father's immediate animosity, she says to him with fond, fond affection, Be nice to this one, Dad. I like him. The normalization of the father's sexual jealousy and hostility to his replacement are firmly established. We know in advance that things will go horribly wrong and we're being primed to both dread and long for the denouement with this casual parenthetical admission that this is what fathers do. None of this seems to disturb us. Why? A father historically protects a daughter, and to the extent that he protects her, it's her value that he's protecting as a piece of property to transfer. He's therefore the guardian of her virginity, her modesty, her shame. A father reluctantly lets her go into the world of men. Suitors must travel via him, assuaging his worries about their intentions. The complicit resignation, the professed horror of the father at the potential caddishness of the suitor have always struck me as shaded with pride, with a pleasure taken in identification and recognition. A father warns his daughter about men's intentions, their shallowness and crudeness, Her father thereby warns his daughter about himself, his past self too. I am a man, I know what it is to be a man. I was like them and now I must warn you about them. I'm warning you about myself, be careful. The father is not in fact instructing the daughter in the woeful ways of men, but is addressing the audience in his pride about them. And yet none of this can be named the Archers, Radio 4's epic long-running soap about a fictional farming village, also minds this dynamic. Not the oedipal desire of the daughter for the father, but the fraught, disavowed desire of the father for the daughter. David Archer, a farmer in his late 50s, has long displayed an overinvestment in the romantic and sexual life of his daughter Pip. For years I wondered if the strangeness of the scenes, the uncomfortable tension between them, was an acting problem. It was as if David and Pip were ex-lovers, talking awkwardly, trying to manage their over-entanglement in one another's lives while pretending to be cool. And David and his wife, Ruth, often speak with Pip about her love life in a way that seems to me unconvincing. Would a teenage girl not want more privacy from her father? Would she not resent the mere fact of his intrusion, not simply the content of them, he often disapproved, of her men? Perhaps this was just bad writing. I came to believe, however, that the script writers knew exactly what they were doing and were playing a long game. That for all the cheery, villagey Englishness of it, the series is in fact an astute exploration of the profoundly different experiences of men and women in the heterosexual family. David hated teenage Pip's boyfriend, Jude, the motorbike-riding, older student, bad boy. He hated her boyfriend, Toby Fairbrother, the posh, hapless cad. And he has been troublingly close to Pip. In one painful phase for the family, when David's wife, Ruth, was often away caring for her ill mother, the sense of David and Pip becoming the marital couple became overwhelming and hard to ignore. Ruth felt it and was hurt and jealous. What's more, David feels outraged when it becomes repeatedly clear that his daughter chooses sexual partners who are not remotely like him. He takes his daughter's sexual life personally and fails to consider that his overinvestment, investment his entitlement to airing his feelings about her sexual choices, is inappropriate. When Pip becomes pregnant, David is outraged that his sister Elizabeth knows more about it before he and Ruth do. Others, Ruth for example, sometimes take him to task for being harsh with Pip's boyfriends, but no one challenges his narcissistic relationship to the boyfriends, his effective insertion of himself as Pip's rejected lover, his insinuation of himself as the figurehead of masculinity, whom Pip must either mirror or reject in her choices. I really hate (laughs) David Archer. (laughs) And yet perhaps David is simply voicing what is a long-standing and naturalized, if not necessarily natural, aspect of fatherhood. Leslie Stephen, Virginia Woolf's father, wrote in 1896 in a letter to Charles Norton, I am practicing for the new position of father-in-law. His stepdaughter Stella was about to marry. He went on, to tell you a profound secret, I find that it has its difficulties. I could do perfectly well without Jack. Why should not she? Is my feeling something abnormal and discreditable to a father or is it natural? A result, perhaps, of the jealousy which makes the man look askance at the devotion of any woman to anybody but himself. His identification with his stepdaughter is nearly total. He's unable to distinguish between self and other. But at least Leslie Stephen in this letter was aware of his his own jealousy, understanding it to be all about himself. Though Wolfe lamented his inability to say to Stella, or indeed to her, I am jealous rather than you are selfish. Her father's feeling, feelings dominated domestic life and Wolfe famously wrote that had he lived, his life would have entirely ended mine. If fathers could acknowledge their jealousy and their projection, their annexing of their daughter's erotic life to their own vanity, their annexing of their daughter's subjectivity to their own, these daughters might suffer less and we might all give up assuming that women's choices must revolve around a man's jealousy. (coughs) Possessiveness and over-identification, incidentally, have have their inevitably cruel lining. In the painful saga of Meghan Markle's now all-too-public difficulties with her erratic father Thomas, he has retaliated for what he sees as her pushing him out of her life. "'What riles me,' he told the Daily Mail, is Meghan's sense of superiority. She'd be nothing without me. I made her the duchess she is today. Everything that Meghan is, I made her. In rhetoric reminiscent of Trump's prideful appropriation of Ivanka's body, his narcissistic claim to ownership of her physical attributes, Thomas Markle does something similar. A daughter's identity and a daughter's achievements belong to her father, and when a father finds himself displaced, he can turn punitive, expelling from himself what he had hitherto seen as his own mirror.
0: Mm. Yeah, wonderful. Um, it, it just occurs to me, listening to you through that whole passage, that um, a more accurate, though undoubtedly less marketable, title for the book would have been Daughter Issues, um, this figure of Leslie Stephen in particular kind of haunts the book. Mm. Um, And I think he bridges into my next question very nicely because you note that he is at least self-aware about his own jealousy and selfishness, although that's Virginia Woolf then suggests that it's a moot point whether he recognises the identity of the two um, or whether he remotely cares about it. Um, One of the most disturbing thoughts, I think, in the book um, is to do with the sort of general cultural conception we have of the protector as in opposition to the predator. And one of the things that you do in the book, and those case studies in David Archer and Leslie Stephen and Thomas Markle um, really crystallize this very powerfully. Um, One of the things you do is that you say, no, these two terms are not binaries. That um, protection and predation are actually in a very disturbingly intimate relationship to each other. And there is a sense for the father that they, they are kind of more or less the same thing, that um, you can only protect as a father if you are a predator, or at least if you are identified with mm-hmm. a predator. Um, now, the difficulty here is that it isn't easy just to renounce for the father just to renounce the predator in himself. Um, Because the point you're making about Leslie Stephen is that you have to know it about yourself. Mm -hmm. Um, Now, you can know it about yourself. Leslie Stephen knows it about himself, and yet it doesn't seem to help a jot. Um, So how does this self-knowledge translate into something more like critical self-awareness? You know, you you talk about the need to acknowledge jealousy, to say I'm jealous rather than sheer selfish. Um, but, uh, you know, I'm not asking you to, to solve the conundrum of, of fatherhood on the spot exactly. I mean, if, yes, you are. If, I, am, I am, I am, I am. And if you don't do it, we'll all be really disappointed. So no pressure, but...
1: I mean I'm glad I'm glad you raised the issue with like the phrase daddy issues because um, I suppose when when I started thinking about this I felt um I just I felt like it's such a fascinating phrase because it's a phrase that is always um or generally used about women and it's it's a very scornful phrase so you know it's used to sort of diagnose uh, women who are you know repeating some kind of compulsion in relation to their father through their sexual choices and romantic choices you know whether it's a man who's older or who looks like their dad or who's powerful or you know embodies something of the kind of power of the father figure and um and I think at one point in the book I I sort of when I'm talking about that kind of the way in which the relationship between fathers and daughters is we're encouraged to think of it as a kind of incestuous romance, I think. I mean, that feels kind of icky to say, but I think, you know, in all in all the kind of scripts about fathers and daughters, it, that is really what is being almost pushed on us. Um, but that dynamic is only going one way, and the phrase daddy issues is one that sort of scorns a woman for, for having daddy issues. And somewhere in the book I say, you know, but what about the father's daughter issues? Because... You know it seems to me that there's something about um that phrase that mirrors what i think is something diagnosable in culture generally which is that you know when we think about relationships between men and women we do tend to kind of put the locus of responsibility on women so that, you know the analogy is um in cases of sexual violence that it's you know, the woman who asked for it or that the woman's desire or her denial of her desire or her changing her mind about her desire, whatever it is, is the ground for sexual violence. And in a funny way I think the phrase daddy issues does something similar, which Mm. is to kind of it's like it pinpoints something, but then it completely Projects it onto the to the woman who, at the same time, is being denied sexual agency mm. and subjectivity. So it's a kind of really incredible, kind of magician's trick that, that the whole of culture is kind of constantly repeating. Mm. Um, but so with, the, I mean, it's interesting what you're saying about predation and protection because, I mean, in a way, I haven't quite thought through. Like when you when you put it that way, I feel a bit, <laughs> a bit shocked. <laughs> I feel like, yes, that is. That is what I'm saying. Because, I mean, one, one of the ways in which I'm, I've thought about that relationship is um, in relation to the water cure, because I think that novel, so the novel by Sophie McIntosh, what that does so well is show how violence can be committed in the name of protection. So these three daughters who live on what seems to be a kind of island far away from civilization with a father called King... Um, and a mother who sort of orchestrate them in these very kind of complex rituals that are supposedly to do with protecting them from the kind of infection of, of men from the outside world and about kind of making them stronger against violence. But these rituals are themselves, you know, vindictive and sadistic and cruel. Mm. Um, and the daughters, are, you know, have grown up with this and are kind of invested in these forms of cruelty that are totally rationalised to them in the form of protection. Um, and I do think that, I mean, that's one of the very painful things about the Me Too conversation for me, and, and just in generally about how we think about female sexuality and um, and male violence, which is that, that sometimes the things that we do in the name of protecting women, it's not just that it fails to protect them, it's that it adds a kind of a different layer of harm and of... Um, inhibition and complication to the psychological and sexual life of women mm. um, and I think the water cure kind of pinpoints exactly that kind of horrible bind that women find themselves in but so but when you point out the, the stuff you know when you kind of draw out the conclusion of the argument which I seem to be resistant to um, realizing really is in the book it's about the individual father and how I mean, I've, I've said it, I read it there, but, I, but it is a difficult thing to think about, is how fathers... Well, how, how men, in general, I suppose, reckon with the, you know, the cultural image of masculinity, which is so required of them, and for which I think they also pay such a heavy price, as do women. And then, you know, when I think through that implication of what it means for an individual father... I do find it. I find it very painful to think about.
0: Yeah, I mean, it gives rise to this sort of off-the-cuff thought, really, about Oedipality, which is obviously also what the book is about. But the Freudian theory of Oedipality is a theory, is a theory of male Oedipality. It's a theory of the mother and the son, really. Um, now, mother son incest seems to be um, a motif that, in a way, is far better metabolized by the culture. It seems to be something that's very much thinkable um, in both its sort of sexualized and its sublimated aspects. Of course, it's, in a way, the basis of Western civilization. Um, So cool. Um, (laughs) uh, um, uh, But Freud makes this famous theoretical move around femininity towards the end of his life. He revises the theory of female sexuality and says actually the object for the little girl is the same as for the little boy. It's the mother, not the father. Now, mm. from a theoretical perspective, that seems right. But one of the things that it points up, and I, I really I have this thought almost for the first time in the light of, of, of reading this book and having this conversation with you, that what it brings to light is then the unthoughtness of the little girl's relationship to the father, and in particular, how incestuous desire sort of is left untheorized then. You know, that that it seems to be this unthinkable dimension of culture, um, of private life, and interestingly, it seems, of psychoanalysis. Mm. Because in a way, you, you know, at the beginning with Freud, you just have this cute symmetry where it's mummy and and boy and daddy and girl. And then when that -hmm. that gets revised, because Freud was never satisfied with it, never elaborated it in relation to the father and daughter, the father-daughter relation just disappears. So all this kind of ickiness and this Mm -hmm. discomfort that we keep talking about this evening, it seems to be really sort of structured into, the, the way we think about you know the unthinkability really mm-hmm. of, of the father daughter relation.
1: So when you say that um, the kind of mother son incestuous sort of figure is more like metabolizable than is you mean do you mean in terms of um, just how 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 we sort of take it for granted that mothers are particularly obsessively loving towards their sons or. That, yeah, that's and vice sort of versa. Mean. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Yeah. 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 And and we really I mean, you know, we have our exceptions, we've got our Norman Bates' of course, but 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 basically we we don't think of that relation as presided over by a kind of violence or predatoriness. Mm. We think of it really as a kind of, you know, erotic affirmation and, and what makes the erotic life possible. Yeah. Um, yeah.
1: I mean, but in a sense, I think that is also true of father-daughter incest. I mean, I, so I've been thinking recently about, you know, because I'm just thinking all the time about dads. <laughs> um, I was thinking about films that I kind of grew up with. And I grew up in Belgium, and so I grew up you know watching a lot of French films and TV. And, uh, and I realized that the – and I don't know if it's because they're French or if it's because it was the 80s, or I don't know <laughs> – I'm not gonna make grand pronouncements about that, but there are certain films that like Mon Père Sur with Depardieu and mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. um Les Boom that was this massive hit that I watched obsessively as a kid about a teenage girl kind of, you know, going to her first kind of school disco and falling in love and and these sorts of films they they're absolutely saturated with Idipal and incestuous kind of longing and often in you know sometimes quite touching ways ways that I actually think were quite a kind of interesting exploration of the a teenage girl sort of you know be, beginning to become aware of the need to like detach and individuate and but also the teenage girl's kind of sexual excitement and her sexual fear and that there's a kind of movement between, you know, the teenage boys, and then a movement back into the family and back to the father as a kind of, you know, the the sort of like the equivalent of the toddler, you know, going away from the mum and then looking back and checking she's there. That there's something mm-hmm. going on mm-hmm. for teenage girls in those films, but but also they are they are creepily incestuous. I mean, in Montparnasse, it's just again, it's this this father who is. Um, You know, having to deal with the fact of his teenage daughter's emerging sexuality. And she, in the film, kind of ropes him into this fiction that he is her lover Mm. in order to impress a teenage boy at the resort that they're on holiday in. So she kind of asks him to act like a lover, and he kind of goes along with it. And in the structure of the film, I found it so interesting looking back at it because I kind of thought, again, this is another instance of placing the the dynamic of desire in the daughter rather than the father whereas in fact in the rest of the film the 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 desire of the older man for the 13 year old girl or whatever she is is completely like overflowing in the rest of the film because this young girl um is you know she's going up to the bar to buy a drink and all the you know 50 year old men are like She's a bit of a hottie. Mm, mm, so mm. it's completely acknowledged that there is this kind of exchange of desire in these directions. Mm. But again, it's being placed in like the problematic locus of that dynamic is completely farmed out to the teenage to, to girl, the girl, yeah, rather than the men who are you know yeah, it's a daddy, lasting after a yeah. child,
0: yeah, yeah.
1: <laughs> it's a great film. <laughs> <laughs>
0: Yeah, yeah, that's right, that's just what they do, yeah, yeah. That, as far as the mannequin said, yeah.
1: I don't uh, know if that answered your question, because I don't quite remember it. Oh, it doesn't <laughs> um, uh I
0: think, I think it did. Um, I, I said to you before that I wasn't going to ask you to solve the conundrum of, of the father and how to be one, um, but in a way, you sort of point us a bit enigmatically in that direction, um, with a, a, a short but I thought really powerful reading of a contemporary artwork, um, Anthea Hamilton's Squash, which really tries to imagine a different kind of gaze, you know, not, not the gaze of the 50-year-old man on the 13-year-old, um, which you know, sort of positions the little girl in a particular kind of relationship to the other's desire. Um, but but a gaze that sort of frees up desire. I mean, mm-hmm. I'm not Okay, But um, can you can you say? I mean, you can you can read from the book if you want. We we left this open beforehand. Um, but it's just a, it's a very short passage actually, but a, a really suggestive one in this context. I think it's
1: maybe I'll I'll read it because yeah. I think I write better than I talk. <laughs> um, do you remember what page I think
0: it might 77. I think. Yes. Yeah.
1: There are people whom I cannot look in the eye in conversation. Avoiding eye contact is often seen as a sign of guilt or shame, but it can also be an attempt to resist being used. The people whose eyes I cannot meet are those in whose gaze I can detect the overwhelming clamor of requested affirmation. Those in whose gaze lies a demand for recognition and a request for compliance. I hate to be made into the mother whose gaze is demanded, the gaze of mirroring and recognition. When I only exist as a mirror for someone else, I cannot go on looking. In 2018, Anthea Hamilton's squash took up residence at Tate Britain in the imposing Devine galleries, now dotted with various podiums and a swimming pool-like stage. Everything was porcelain-like, gleaming and clean, clinical in its brightness. The day I went, the squash, performed or embodied by a rotor of actors, was sitting on a square armchair-like structure. I approached from behind, could see the round bulb of its head and its relaxed, confident pose. Moving round it, I saw the squash more clearly. A human figure, dressed that day in floaty clothes, a full dress with a velvet-looking panel at the chest and somewhat puffed sleeves. It was wearing bright yellow and green gloves, thick and sturdy like those used for gardening. A beautiful, bulbous, obscene, squash-like structure covered its entire head. The colours salmon pink and emerald green marbled like Florentine endpapers. Its sort of nose was long, animal, vegetable, and genital all at once. It sat imperious, though not unfriendly, looking out at a bemused audience. People strolled by and stopped in curiosity. Some rushed past, disconcerted. One woman visibly shuddered, and catching my eye, pulled a face. The squash was uncanny, for sure. Others failed to notice it at all. For its part, it sat watching us, calmly, placidly, a human-animal vegetable, deliciously genderless, a formidable projective screen, I watched it for ages, hypnotised by its ambiguous connotative form, its lack of face as such, its absence of discernible needs or investments in anyone else's gaze. At one point I sensed its awareness of my prolonged staring, but seeing no eyes and no face, I felt able to stay there and keep looking. When I eventually moved round to the back of it to leave, Its great lovely head turned heavily with my movement, slowly following me. It was such a relief to look at the squash, to hold and be held by a gaze I could not really see, to experience an exchange of gazes free of anxiety, desire, investment, demand. How wonderful it would be not to have to see people's faces with all their needs and longings and projections, and to have one's face unseen, one's own face, with all its needs and longings and projections.
0: Yeah, I think that's maybe my favourite passage in the book. And I suppose the question that I want to ask you about it um, is what it's doing in the book.
1: I think... (laughs) Let me think a minute. I think it's, gosh, I mean, it's hard. I don't quite know. I think it's about, I mean, structurally in the book, what it's about is, I, th- I think if I remember the structure rightly, it's part of the book where I start talking much more explicitly about the gaze and about Winnicott's theories and Winnicott's account of the false self, um, which is a sort of structurally viable but ultimately counterproductive self that a child erects in response to feeling the parent's needs too strongly so he talks about um, how if a child is too aware of the gaze of the parent with its demands and its anxiety and its kind of stresses the child can't sort of develop fully because it becomes too concerned with mirroring the parent and with sort of playing a part for the parent and I was thinking about that a lot in general and reading a lot of Winnicott and when I went to see the squash I mean I found it like the most moving experience mm. and I dutifully went to my analyst and talked about why and I really um, it just became very clear to me that there, there is something about um, about eye contact that that is I mean incredibly rich I mean as you of course know, must know intimately in your practice as a psychoanalyst that the, you know, the the way in which we communicate despite ourselves what we want and what we need through the mere fact of our faces, no matter how we try to kind of, you know, remain poised and dissimulate. And I mean, that's one of the things I find so fascinating about psychoanalysis is the, the possibility of like training in having no face in a way, which I think, must be a very difficult thing to do. Well, it's the origin um,
0: story of the couch, of course.
1: Exactly, mm. yeah. Mm. Um, but I, so I suppose in the book, I mean, it felt to me like a point, a sort of nodal point in the book where some of these questions about um, about just what can be contained in such tiny, minute, private dynamics within the family and what they can kind of speak of in the kind of wider culture emerged for me in the writing of it Um, but I think it's also to do with the role of writing because at various points in the book I talk about um, writing as a kind of solution or an antidote to that kind of stress of experiencing other people's needs and having to sort of manage one's own needs Um, and that a kind of a, se- a sort of sensitivity that you can have for a father but also the sensitivity that I think women have towards men in general because we are very much trained to detect flickers of desire and flick- flickers of hostility and flickers of those things kind of melded together and we're you know very used to kind of having antennae out so much to in order to protect ourselves from male violence. The squash was this kind of Space that felt really analogous to me, to the space of writing, mm. which is where you're free from that. In writing, mm. you, you're not looking at anyone when you're writing. It's it's a kind of gazeless space, and you can therefore be much more ruthless, much more violent, much more truthful than you can in speech. Or I mean, speaking for myself only, that's certainly true. That I I couldn't say any of this to anybody. I can I can write it mm. because I can't see their face, <laughs> mm. Mm. so it's sort of yeah. I suppose it became an emblem for for the possibility of um, of truth telling in a way, and, it, and, and I suppose it figures as well in my discussion of Tony Erd- Edmund, this amazing film, German film by Marin Ade, um, where her father kind of materializes in this very uncanny form where his face is obscured. And that to me felt like such a kind of interesting Winnicottian moment potentially in the film because this very troubled dynamic between a father and a daughter in the film is resolved or is, it's too glib a word, but it's kind of things are freed up, that she becomes free to assimilate both her love for her father and her rage and her hatred of him when she can't see his face, mm. and that feels so instructive, that there's something inhibiting about intimacy and the terrible pliancy of the human face. I don't know if that answers it.
0: No, it's that's great. That's, that's <laughs> wonderful. That's really wonderful. Um, let me then <laughs> just take you back to, uh, to, to Winnicott. How are we doing on time? Oh, is it? Yes, okay, okay. It should, it should so right yes, no. I definitely want. Questions. I definitely want to have time for a few questions. Yeah. I mean, we could we could go on for ages. I was going to <laughs> ask about Winnicott, but in a way, you've said quite a lot already, and uh, there may be questions from the audience about that. So at the back, we've got we've got a we've got a mic coming.
3: Thanks. <coughs> can you can you hear me? Okay. Yeah. Thanks a lot for that. I've really enjoyed that discussion. I feel like I have to begin with a bit of a confession, which is I haven't been able to bring myself to read the book because I'm so sort of afraid of how it might make me feel about my own father. (laughs) Not that he's an abuser or a predator, as far as I'm aware. Um, But I was just thinking now, Catherine, when you were talking about um, writing and the gaze... Um, And having written a sort of memoir myself, I was thinking, how could you, I mean, when you were writing this, did you not feel your, I don't know anything about your, your own family structure, but did you not feel your own father's gaze there all the time, or members of your family, and how they may approve or disapprove of of what you've written about, because I know that there's no way, if I, if I even wrote a book that was called Daddy Issues, I'd incur the wrath of my entire extended family. <laughs> so I'm really sorry to kind of bring it to the personal, <laughs> and I've been intrigued by the fact that, that you haven't, but I just feel I have to ask you that question. <laughs> Thanks very much. Um,
0: That's why I didn't ask, I knew somebody else would. But...
1: Of course, I feel <clears throat> the gaze. Or i well I say that, but in the writing i don't i don't feel it, but as soon as I stop writing, of course I feel it um, which I think is why I write because <laughs> it 's the only place that i don't feel that gaze um, and of course that changes when you write something and then and then people read it, and then they ask you questions about it, and then you. And then all of a sudden, there are there are lots of gazes with all their demands and their needs and their projections, which is totally fair enough. And of course, that's what you want as a writer. You want that gaze. But um, yeah, I I do feel it, and it's a. And I suppose it's a feature of my writing in general, because you know, my first book was about sex and feminism and, you know, it was in a very kind of personal register in a way. And again, that was a very odd experience because, you know, people would constantly say to me about that book, how did you write that book? How do you write about these incredibly personal things, knowing that people are going to read it and that your father is going to read it and that your mother is going to read it and that your head of department is going to read it? People got really obsessed about that in this really patriarchal kind of what's your dean there's obviously a man going to think of you writing about your sex life. Um, and, I, and I feel like in, when, I, when I respond to that question, it's very complex because on the one hand, one truthful answer is when I'm writing, I do not think about it and I do not care. But actually it's stronger than that. It's that the writing is a way to to sort of erect a boundary between myself and others that I don't feel is that Um, strongly erected in the rest of my life, I suppose. And it's a way to kind of push that away, to to push the the walls of that boundary further back, if you like. Um, But of course, it's terrifying. It's terrifying. It's terrifying to write anything, but it's terrifying to write anything that is about something tricky and complex and messy, whether in fact you are explicit or not about the sort of personal realm you know nature of it, because you know in this book i don 't talk about my father, of course it 's completely saturated <laughs> with my feelings about my father um, but i really I really think that you know towards the end of the book, I talk about writing as a way of basically creating the the object the good winnicott 's good enough mother, so this phrase that he used about the mother who and he meant good enough in this way that is like very ordinary but also incredibly admiring and, you know, it's a work of incredible skill to be a good enough mother. And for me, writing is a way of creating a good enough something that means that I can play and I can express my aggression and I can become myself. And so the, answer, the kind of deeper answer is that it's only in the writing that I can be who I am, and attack the object who will survive my attack. <laughs>
2: okay. I
1: hope you read it, Laura. <laughs> You'll survive.
4: <laughs> um, uh, I think maybe it's a question for both of you, and maybe you kind of half answered a bit. Is there, is there a difference between sort of being looked at and looked after in a way that you're kind of referring to there and to ask that question of both of you
3: for if you like for men uh being the gazer the person with the libido you know from the daughter's perspective is any appearance of the father's libido tolerable it feels like it sort of isn't it must be repressed it must be sequestered it must be and so if you're in the position of
4: that Father, I'm not.
3: But <laughs> then then what? What does one do as an sexuality? And, and, and do you also need to sometimes not be
1: looked at or looked after or not be looking? How, can you address that from the sort of... You, you kind
3: of touched on it, but then... Yeah, so yeah well, too. I mean,
0: like you, um, uh, I, I'm also not in that specific position. I don't have daughters. Um, but I, I do work with fathers of daughters and with daughters of fathers. Um, and... One of the things that really strikes me, um, particularly actually when women are talking about their relationships to their fathers, is that a kind of impasse develops around the burgeoning of the girl's sexuality, um, in which the father is really at a loss as to how to acknowledge and even enjoy the daughter's sexuality while releasing it while enabling it not to be his that um, one of the things I find myself talking about so much in the consulting room is how the daughter the girl, the woman now feels trapped in the interpolation of the father who in some sense still owns her erotically and who has internalized the sense actually of a gaze on somebody else or just a, a kind of free expression of sexuality as a kind of betrayal and I think that 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 has to do with a kind of erotic uh, a, a kind of uh, um, a lacuna in, in, in the father's erotic education and it maybe has something to do with what we were saying before about the absence really of, of, a, of an elaborated discussion of father-daughter incest in Freud, that there isn't a, a sense of how the father releases the, the daughter's sexuality to the world. Mm-hmm. No, I, I mean, I, 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 I feel like, I mean, <clears throat> funnily enough, you know, if there's a, a clue in, in the book, it probably is in the discussion of, of Tony Edman. Mm. um yeah
1: yeah i mean i it's interesting quite a few women have written to me people who've read the book and have talked about um sort of incidents in their in their sort of teenage years where um the father kind of you know discovers evidence of the girl's sexuality by sort of walking in on her kissing a boyfriend or something like that and there's a scene um the philosopher Susan Bordeaux talks about this. She wrote this really interesting memoir called *The Male Body*, that's partly about her father and masculinity. And she talks about this kind of the scene where her father, in a kind of rage, discovers her and a boyfriend when she she was 18 or something. And that, in fact, she is quite touched by this gesture because it was the gesture that he could show. It was it, it was in fact the form of affection and tenderness and love that he was able to show her but it was in this form of kind of crazy sexual jealousy and so you know she's very ambivalent about it but is quite moved by it in a way um and I suppose I I do think that because I'm you know I'm definitely not on the side of like suppressing the libido (laughs) anyone's libido but you know of course the big question is you know what what one does with it and how how one sort of manages it um Responsibly to sound really boring about the the libido, but I do think that you know one of the things that I try and pinpoint in the book, and that I've been interested to see women kind of echo back to me in their responses to it, is that in that in that moment, it's like it's all about the father when it's it's not. I mean, obviously, you know, his feelings are there, but this is about the girl's emerging sexuality and her her need to kind of negotiate the world of. Um, her own desire in relation to the world of male violence, does it really help us to then see another instance of effectively male violence mm-hmm. trying to suppress that desire in the girl in the name of protection? It seems to me such such a counterproductive message. Even if I can understand or you know, feel sympathy for the, kind of, the confusion that it, it must engender in the father... You know, I'm, I'm really hard on dads in this book, but I also I, f- I feel like it's a, a very painful predicament to be in, to be a man and to be a father. <laughs> I wouldn't wish it on anyone. <laughs> um, yeah. It's a, a way that sort of lots of men I
4: know kind
0: of sexual Jen, do you want to take the mic? Um, because people at the back I might not be able to.
4: Um, to deal with the problems that you were just mentioning, then I think lots of men go into a kind of sort of kind of sexual retirement in, in a public sense, where they might become clownish, like in Tony Ebman or buffoonish, because they really don't know how to take up their place in a in a different way.
1: You mean? At what stage do you mean? Do you mean when when men become old? Um, just
4: sort of that. That it becomes very um, much a challenging thing for older men to be um, sexual beings, but also is to it? be a father. I think so. Yeah, I think for lots of men, older men these days, it's it's you know it's sort of um, it's it's become I mean, more deconstructed being... than it than it it has been. Yeah,
1: I mean, I think being a sexual being is challenging and complicated for anyone, but I think, I mean, the, the older male libido has a lot of presence culturally in a way that the women's libido doesn't when they're past, you know, 40 or whatever it is, whatever the arbitrary cutoff point for female sexual agency is, you know, in that brief window where she may have managed to emancipate herself from the various, you know, constraints on female sexual agency. I guess I'm slightly disputing your claim. I mean, I'm not, you know, yeah. sex is complicated for everyone, but... Yeah.
0: Just behind... Um... Roberta? Yeah.
2: <laughs> Thank you. Thank you both. That was just fascinating. Um, I'm thinking a bit more about this public-private uh, business because I thought what you said about how the when, a, when like, the girl who played Bill Cosby's daughter um W- was used in that way as a kind of look. He was so cute then, and I was so cute, and look at us now. And and the way that that sort of thing can trump, use, using the word advisedly, somebody a, a whole load of, of, of publicity about somebody's sort of uh, hashtag me offences. But then I was also thinking of their very nature. Those those kind of um, uh, infractions take place privately. They take place, mm. you know, beh- where where nobody can see, which is why you know all kind all those sorts of crimes are so difficult to ever really prove. And 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 conversely, somebody's role as a as a loving husband or a loving father or even a loving you know America's dad, Bill Cosby kind of uh, type father, is in a way a public. It's a thing that can be publicized, mm. and the kind of relationship you have. Um, uh, it, an illicit workplace relationship, or whatever it happens to be, or or something non-consensual, or whatever, is uh, it might be ultimately publicly known and spoken about, but in many mouths. But it has a private quality that mm-hmm. being able to say this is my wife, or this is my daughter, or or, or whatever, it, it doesn't is is kind of opposite. So in a way, there's like a I'm a really mm-hmm. it's not an incredibly coherent thought or question, but it's you know what is public. Mm-hmm. What is what is publicly known is often very privately experienced, and what is privately known can be very publicly experienced. Mm. And those those two categories, as a sort of as a way in which the, those things become quite very complicatedly mixed mm. in the way that, that certain men perform their relationships with the women in in their life. That's what I wanted to say. But
1: it's also, I think, the question of what it is to know something, because I think we've all had the experience, especially recently, of um, of uh, you know, realizing that you knew something that you didn't think you knew, or you know, I mean, say say all the people around Weinstein, or you know, I mean, that so often you hear the phrase like, "Oh my God, I guess I, I guess I kind of knew, but I didn't know," you know, that there are lots of people who had ample evidence at their fingertips to put two and two together, but something in them prohibited they're knowing what was going on. Um, so I think, there's, I think you're totally right to, you know, that the boundary between the, the public and the private is so kind of blurred and it's so difficult to manage. But I think it's also a question of, like, you know, the, the will to not know is incredibly powerful. And, I, and, I, and that's one, for me, that's one of the most interesting things that's come out of the Me Too thing is, is how you can know something without knowing it and why, why we don't want to know certain things about certain people and even even when we know them i mean you know and this is a kind of more general problem isn't it like the things that we know about trump and about boris johnson etc they sort of they don't seem like knowledge doesn't seem to have any gravitational pull anymore it's like knowledge has become completely mm-hmm. disembodied from action and belief or
0: <sighs> Yeah. Shall we maybe take two questions now? Yeah. So this gentleman and this... <clears throat> Make it very brief. You spoke at the beginning about um, your thoughts of the terrible plight of women, um, young women whose fathers were the, um, the Trumps or the Greens or the Weinsteins of this world. Did you give thought to young women whose fathers were paragons of virtue, who were publicly esteemed, were in the home of Sigmund Freud. Anna Freud lived in the bedroom over there.
1: Yeah.
3: I, oh,
1: is there we, the one? Oh, one?
3: oh, yes, sorry, sorry, yeah. <coughs> no, it's just a question, so actually I can share the with you. It's just uh, to talk about the reference uh, about this idea of uh, gaze. that you don't have when you're writing. Did you read about the
1: love of Medusa of Elen Sixou? okay <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> great great text yeah did you want to well i just wanted to bring up actually in relation to the idea of um the father as the protector but also this idea of protection comes out of you know um, and aggression as well in some way and i was thinking in relation to the me too movement just about the law and how the law has been used to sort of contain and curtail fathers in many ways. I mean, prisons are filled with men. Um, and, and there have been recent changes in the law sort of past Me Too, um, especially in relation to coercive control and, mm-hmm. and how we can sort of rethink this on a bigger level in order to, um, you know, contain or control um, mm. Male masculinity and fatherhood in a new way, um, and I just wondered if you'd reflected on that. Mm. Or if you could say more about that. Um, so the question about was it? Did you say like good good dads or paragons of virtue? Paragons of virtue. Freud, yeah. Freud. Yeah. I mean, I don't know if Freud was a paragon of virtue. <laughs> <laughs> Depends. Just, Not by everyone. Um, but yeah, I mean, no, that's one of the things I would have I would have loved to write about. Anna Freud and Sigmund Freud and just, yeah, that's sort of, I suppose the image of the dutiful daughter um, because that, that's such a fascinating dynamic, you know, where, in a way whether the father is a paragon of virtue or not um, but in a sense I think in a way the burden is still the same like right? regardless of what your father is like, the you know, the structure of the relationship is such that you honour a father that is sort of expected. And, you know, especially given all the things that come out about various men and then daughters' loyalty to them, it's sort of, it's almost irrelevant what a father does. The question is, how do you, how can you as a daughter and as a woman disentangle yourself from the power that is the father, you know? And, And in the book, I think there's, you know, what I hope is a kind of productive slippage between the individual father and the kind of the father of society that kind of Wolf talks about. Um, but I think it's, it's, all, it's almost immaterial <laughs> what
0: the father is.
1: The struggle is how to, you know, how to individuate and emancipate yourself. <laughs> I don't know how one does that. Um, yeah, so... Sorry, Bonnie, I've forgotten what your question was. Just, just, it was just about, about the law. About the law, yeah. No, I mean, I suppose that's, a, that's something that... Um, I feel very preoccupied by in relation to me too is that, you know, when when certain bad men have kind of fallen from grace and been punished in various ways, that's uh, it's gratifying. You know, there's part there's part of me that wants to see these these bad men fall. But I'm also very suspicious of that as a as a feeling and as a kind of motivation for how we think sort of so you know socially about what me too is doing because a because the fall of individual bad men doesn't affect anything structurally, but also because, um, you know, the the criminal justice system is not a just system, and, you know, black men are disproportionately affected by incarceration, you know, so that's a whole can of worms that I think... It's not enough to just think we need to imprison men who have done bad things. It's, It's just the beginning of a conversation about... How to really think about what justice is. That's my brief. <laughs> As you can see, the discussion could have gone yep. on slightly <laughs> longer. But thank you, both, for a really fascinating, mm. thought-provoking mm. discussion. Uh, so the book has, has for people who haven't yet read it, want to continue exploring these issues. But um,
0: and Catherine will sign. Catherine
1: yes, I can sign. Uh, But thank you both so much for for
0: really such a a great
1: conversation. Thank Thank you. you.